We turn this morning in our Bibles to the book of Hebrews, chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9, it's verses 15 through 28. And to make the necessary connection, we will be looking at, looking from verse 13, reading from verse 13. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised inher- eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world, but as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. As we can see, this uh, passage is steeped in doctrine, in theology. And one of the things that we need to note is that we never, we cannot really appreciate this passage or elsewhere in the book of Hebrews without an understanding of the Old Testament. But as we have been seeing in previous studies, the author to the Hebrews was addressing Jewish Christians who, in the face of severe persecution for their faith in Jesus Christ, 
were inclined to turn back to Judaism with its ritual emphases, its strict adherence to Mosaic law, the Mosaic law, as a way of obtaining salvation from God. And in the preceding chapters, right up to this point, he has been demonstrating to them that Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament institutions and systems of worship, that he's better than the angels, that he's better than Moses, that as the great high priest, he supersedes Melchizedek and Aaron, and that among other things, he administers and mediates a far better covenant than that which obtained under the Mosaic law. And in this passage, he highlights the importance of the death of the Lord Jesus. And it's not hard for us to figure out why he would take time out in all of chapter 9 and more so, more concentratedly in verses 15 through 28 on this subject because you see, as far as the Gentiles were concerned and even more so the Jews, the death of Christ was an outrage. It was a scandal of enormous proportions. And Paul summarized for us very well this very reality when he declared in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Against that backdrop, we can therefore understand why the writer would take time out to address these Christians suffering as they were under persecution, encouraging them to stay true to the Lord Jesus, to not turn back from faith in him as Lord and Savior. What is the writer then doing here in this passage? In this passage, he unfolds for them in detailed, systematic fashion the nature and purpose of the death of Christ. The nature and purpose of the death of Christ. In fact, ten times in this chapter, he makes reference to the blood. And when he speaks of the blood, that is his, uh, we would say, his summarizing way, the summarizing term in which he speaks of the death of Christ. Here, he contrasts in this chapter the shed blood of Christ with the blood of bulls and goats. The blood of Christ he's saying, is representative of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now here in verses 15 through 28, we find at least seven truths that he highlights regarding the death of Christ. Seven truths that are designed to impress on his readers, his doubting, wavering readers, the validity of the death of Christ for a saving relationship with God. The first is this, we'll go through them in turn. The first is this, that the death of Christ was sacrificial. The death of Christ was sacrificial. Verse 14, here he makes the point that by shedding his blood, Jesus, through the eternal spirit, offered up himself without blemish to God. He's using there the language of sacrifice. He offered up himself without blemish to God. Verse 23, he asserts that by his atoning death, Christ offered a better
better sacrifice than the blood of bulls and of goats. Verse 26, the point is made clear that Christ appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. In verse 28, he calls attention to the fact that Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. No, the death of Christ was not the death of a martyr in support of some social or political cause. Jesus did not die as a good man fighting for a good cause. Jesus' death was not a tragedy. It was not an accident of history. In dying, the word of God teaches he suffered in our place as a sacrifice for our sins. And dying on behalf, on our behalf, as our sin bearer, the word of God teaches that he bore for us the just wrath of God, the wrath that you and I so rightly and truthfully deserved. In dying, he endured the penalty of death and condemnation which you and I justly deserved. And this was precisely what the writer was pointing out to his readers, that Christ's death was sacrificial in nature. But second, in this passage, the writer establishes the fact that the death of Christ was redemptive. The death of Christ was redemptive. And with respect to the death of Christ, he cites in verse 15, the the deep part of verse 15, the fact that the death of Christ has occurred. He says, in the death of Christ, a death has occurred that redeems from transgressions. What is redemption? The biblical idea of redemption is that of paying a price to set someone free. Whether from prison or from slavery. My friends, Jesus' death on the cross, the word of God teaches, was the means by which sinners imprisoned in darkness in the kingdom of Satan under the dominion of sin were liberated, were set free through the price of Christ's redeeming blood. And that Christ's death was redemptive in nature. You'll recall back in chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, the writer made this very clear when he pointed out that one purpose for which Christ came into this world, one purpose for which he took on human flesh, or, or as we would say, became incarnate, was that through death, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, And here it comes, deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And that word deliver carries this very idea of redemption, of liberation by the payment of a price, my friends. That's what Christ did when he took on human flesh, when he came into this world as our sin bearer. He died as a sacrifice, and his death as a sacrifice, his sacrificial death was also redemptive in nature. In fact, look at verse 12. In verse 12, we read, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of bulls and goats, but by means of his own blood, thus securing what? An eternal redemption. And this could not have been done by us. The word of God teaches we were held bound in sin. We were under the dominion of Satan. We were dead in trespasses and sins. And the thing we need to realize, my friend, is that sin is a power from which no man can liberate himself or herself. 
Sin is a power that captivates. Sin is a power that has dominion over us unless Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, liberates us and sets us free from its grip, from its power. As the commentator James Stevens notes, he says this, quote, gifted as man is, with marvelous abilities and powers, capable as he is of reaching heights of mental or moral attainment and of accomplishing works of great magnitude, he can never at his very best and highest make atonement. He can never achieve the cleansing of himself from his sins. For this, he's absolutely dependent on Christ dying for him. Man's place is that of being helpless to make atonement for himself and therefore being lost. He can only participate in the inestimable benefits of the new covenant when he is, by believing on Christ, placed of God under the blood of sprinkling, end quote. According to the writer of the Hebrews, the writer of the Hebrews, not only was the death of Christ sacrificial and redemptive, but the death of Christ ratified his mediatorial authority. Now that sounds huge, so we're going to break it apart. The death of Christ ratified his mediatorial authority. That is to say, it confirmed, it attested to the fact that he is the bona fide, legit administrator of God's new covenant as it relates to human redemption. Here's how the writer puts it in verse 15a. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant. The connective, therefore, or more literally, on an account of this, harks back to verses 11 through 14. And these verses highlight the blood of Christ as that single atoning sacrifice which supersedes the blood of bulls and of goats. According to verse 12, Christ by his own blood secured eternal redemption. Implied in verse 14 is that unblemished, this blood of the Lord Jesus Christ is possessed of purifying, liberating power. Says the writer there in verse 14, it purifies our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. In other words, the blood of Christ removes the guilt of sin. The blood of Christ frees us up to serve God. That's what the salvation in Jesus Christ does. Salvation in Jesus Christ not only pacifies the conscience, it purifies the conscience, and more than that, salvation in Jesus Christ frees us up, it liberates us to serve the true and living God. So here in verse 15, the writer's argument then is this. That it was precisely because of the superiority and efficiency of Christ's shed blood, the fact that he offered himself as a sacrifice for sin, that the new covenant was established, of which covenant he becomes the mediator, or if you prefer, the administrator. In other words, he becomes bonafide, legit, the one who takes that place between the holy and righteous God of heaven and sinful man and mediates between them so that sinful man comes on peaceful terms into peaceful relations with the holy and righteous God of heaven. You see, the idea is this, that an account of God's 
uncompromising holiness on account of the fact that he could not have entered covenantal relations with sinful humanity in their sins unless atonement was made for their sins, unless human blood was shed for their sins. And here's the point, not just any blood, but the precious blood of the Lord Jesus as of a lamb without spot and without blemish. In no way could man come into peaceful, amicable relations with God. And in no way could the blood of bulls and goats satisfy the claims of divine justice. The writer is saying here, beloved, this, that Christ was the only sacrifice, Christ was the only qualified sacrifice there was, and that by offering his blood, by offering himself on behalf of sinners, shedding his precious blood, he fully satisfied all the just and holy demands of a righteous God. And so by virtue of the sufficiency, by virtue of the effectiveness of his atoning work, the writer is saying he becomes the mediator of the new covenant. And that was why back in Luke chapter 22, verse 20, if you know your New Testament very well, you know at that last supper, Jesus could speak of the new covenant that is in my blood. And why he could say to his disciples as he gave them the cup from which they were to drink of the fruit of the vine, the night he instituted what we now know as the Lord's Supper, he could say to them, drink of it all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Now, the express purpose for which Christ was made mediator of the new covenant is stated in the A part of verse 15. The writer states there the express purpose for which Christ was made the mediator of the new covenant. Here's what he says in the A part of verse 15. So that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. He was made the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. In other words, by his atoning sacrificial death, Christ was assigned the role of mediator. Why? So that he might bring into effect the promised eternal inheritance for all who are to be saved. The question is, what is this promised eternal inheritance? And may I suggest to you, based on the word of God, that that promised eternal inheritance is Redemption or release from transgressions. It is redemption or release from transgressions. It is deliverance from the guilt and penalty of sin. That promised eternal inheritance is forgiveness of sins. How do we know that? Colossians chapter 1 verse 14. In him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. In fact, you will recall when we were in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 12, and we were considering that whole chapter which dealt with the new covenant. One of the things we learned there, that part of the arrangement of this new covenant was that God promised that he would establish, here's what he says he would do, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. What is he referring to there? The forgiveness of sins. That's part of the new covenant, total, absolute forgiveness of sins, not just the covering of sins. 
And then look again at verse 15 of our text. Verse 15, Therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first commandment. Christ has been made a mediator for this express purpose so that he might dispense the promised eternal inheritance, namely the forgiveness of sins. If you remember, one of the apostles that was preaching in Acts chapter 5 verse 31, and one of the statements he made there in Acts chapter 5 verse 31, he says this, that Jesus Christ, him God has raised to be a prince and a savior to grant forgiveness of sins. In this regard, he is the mediator, he is the administrator of this new covenant. Why? Because redemption is found in him. In him was the one true sacrifice that God accepted that satisfied the just, holy, righteous demands of God. And he is made, the writer says here, the mediator of a new covenant. Why? Because a death has occurred, his death, which redeems from transgressions committed under the first covenant. Now, there are two questions that verse 15 answers for us. Two questions answered for us in verse 15. And the first is this. To whom does Christ, as mediator of the new covenant, grant this promised eternal inheritance, this, this promised eternal inheritance of redemption from transgression. To whom does Christ grant this blessing? And the answer is given us there, the B part of verse 15, it is to those who are called, to those who are called. The term is used in the New Testament to refer to the redeemed, Inherent in this term is the idea of God's sovereign initiative. The fact that salvation does not stem from human effort or merit, but from God's absolute freedom. In other words, Christ became the mediator of the new covenant so that he might grant the forgiveness of sins, that he might grant the forgiveness of sins not to everybody indiscriminately, but specifically to those who are called, to those whom God has sovereignly called, to whom God has sovereign, those whom God has sovereignly chosen for salvation. His freedom to grant his saving grace to whomever he wills is what is taught here in this passage. The second question that verse 15 answers for us is this. What is the extent of this redemption from transgressions that Christ as mediator of the new covenant affords? The answer is found in the second half of verse 15. It is this, that it extends, this forgiveness extends all the way back to those who were under the first covenant. We read there, a death has occurred, speaking of Christ's death, a death has occurred that redeems them. Who would be the damned there? The context suggests those, he says, those who are called, and who, who, are being, who are the called there in this context? It would be the Old Testament saints. Look at the verse very carefully. Since a death has occurred that redeems them, 
Those were called from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Do you see that? Yes? We see here that whereas those who are called is a comprehensive term for all believers in Jesus Christ, Old Covenant, New Covenant, here it is referring specifically to the Old Testament saints. And the point the writer is making here is this, that this New Covenant of Christ, of which Christ is mediator, is far-reaching in its redemptive benefits, so much so, here it comes, it embraces those Old Testament saints who were under the guilt of transgressions, extending forgiveness way back to those Old Testament saints. That's huge. That is massive. The Word of God suggests, beloved, that under the Old Covenant, here's the point, the sins of the people under the Old Covenant were merely covered. In fact, the very Hebrew word that's used for atonement, kafar, means covering, to cover. When atonement was made for sin in the Old Testament, what happened was this. The sacrifice of those goats, bulls, the blood of those animals, merely covered sin. It never washed away sin. It never took away sin. It merely covered those sins. The word of God suggests that those animal sacrifices were but types, foreshadowings of that perfect Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, who in time would die as a sacrifice for sin. And with the death of Christ, the writer is saying here in verse 15, his having become the mediator of the new covenant effectively frees those Old Testament believers from the guilt of sin that they had committed under the first covenant, that is the Mosaic covenant. My friends, how powerful, how far-reaching is the redemptive mediatorial work of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have a great salvation. We have a great Savior. We have a salvation, my friends, that is not just for New Testament believers. We have a salvation that extends way back to Old Testament believers. And here we have the question answered that's often asked. How were the people of the Old Testament saved? Well, how were the people of the Old Testament saved? The answer is given us right here in this passage. The fact is they were saved in the very same way by the very same means by which you and I are saved. That is, they were saved not by their good works. They were saved not because they offered those sacrifices. They were saved not because they went through the various rituals, through the various ceremonies, they were saved because of Christ's atoning, redeeming, mediatorial work. I like how one writer explains it. He says this, quote, There's a sense in which God saved Old Testament people on credit. They were justified by faith, just as we are, but Christ had not died as yet, then how could God save them? He says this, the answer is that he saved them on the basis of what he knew Christ would accomplish. They knew little or nothing of what Christ would do at Calvary, but God knew and he reckoned the value of that work to their account when they believed whatever revelation he gave them of himself. Here's the point. Old Testament believers, you see, in a real sense, were not truly, truly saved 
in the strictest sense of the word, in the strictest sense of the term, until Christ became mediator of the new covenant. Yes, there's a sen- another sense in which you would say, well, in terms of, as this writer says, God saved them on credit. But that salvation was only realized in its fullest when Christ became mediator of the new covenant, when Christ actually went to Calvary's cross. And so it is that because Christ is the mediator of the new covenant, those who are called both under the old covenant and the new covenant are recipients of eternal salvation, of eternal redemption. According to the writer to the Hebrews, the death of Christ, number one, was sacrificial. The death of Christ, number two, was redemptive. The death of Christ, number three, ratified his mediatorial authority. And fourthly, the death of Christ was an absolute necessity. The death of Christ was an absolute necessity. No, as we said earlier, the death of Christ was no tragedy. The death of Christ was no accident of history. The death of Christ was an absolute necessity because it occurred in accordance with the perfect will and purpose of God. And here at verses 16 to 23 of our text, the author of Hebrews presents at least three arguments as to why Jesus' death was a necessity. And we'll go through them very quickly. Number one, the death of our Lord Jesus was necessary because of this. Because in his mediatorial capacity of dispensing the promised eternal inheritance, namely the forgiveness of sins, he had to fulfill the function of a testator. I know that's very long, so let me say it again. His death was necessary. Why? Because in his mediatorial capacity of dispensing the promised eternal inheritance, that is the forgiveness of sins, he had to fulfill the function of a testator. Now, as we know, a testator is one who makes a will that in the event of his death, his property, his goods, are passed on, are inherited by his designated beneficiary. And after referring to the promised inheritance to be received by the redeemed, The author here in Hebrews chapter 9 portrays Christ as a testator of that promised inheritance. He suggests that having made a will, so to speak, promising that all who believe in him would be forgiven of their sins, having trusted in him as their savior, Christ of necessity had to die. He had to die before that will could come into effect, before its benefit could be achieved. This is the point that's presented in verses 16 and 17. Now, look at verses 16 and 17. Here's this argument. We read, for where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death since It is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. You know, even today, that legal principle still holds true. A testator may draft a will, and he may hide it, he may lock it away in a safe box, and that's all well and good. But here's the point. That will is of no use, is of no good to the beneficiary until the testator, what, dies. 
As long as he's alive, his property can never be legally distributed, can never be legally handed over to the beneficiary. And here's the point. The writer of the Hebrews makes this very point, that even when the testator dies, evidence has to be submitted to that effect. So here's the point of the writer. The writer is saying there, by a similar token of necessity, Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, that covenant that promised forgiveness, that promised redemption, if or since he was testator of that, of that will, of that promise, he therefore had to what? Die before the benefit of that forgiveness could be accessed. That's what he's saying here in this verse. So first of all, the death of Christ was necessary because in his mediatorial role of dispensing forgiveness, of promising forgiveness of sins, he had to fulfill the role of a testator, which meant that he of necessity had to die before the forgiveness of sins could be granted. The death of Christ was an absolute necessity. It was an absolute necessity. Secondly, because the establishment of the first covenant required the shedding of blood. And the shedding of blood was also crucial to the establishment of the second covenant. Now follow this now. The writer is saying, why did Christ have to die? The reason is this, because the establishment of the first covenant, that is the Mosaic covenant, was by means of blood. And similarly, the shedding of blood was also crucial to the establishment of the new covenant. Here's his line of argument, verses 18 through 22. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Now, you see why I said we have to know our Old Testament very well. Because read the book of Leviticus, read through the Old Testament. Old Testament. And what we are confronted with, page after page, is nothing but blood. Blood, blood, blood. Sacrifice of bulls, of goats. And the point then the writer to the Hebrews is making here is that just as the sprinkling of blood inaugurated the Mosaic Covenant and was necessary to purify the sanctuary and its vessels, so the shedding of Jesus' blood inaugurated or brought into effect the new covenant. And we are wrapping up now. So what's the application? Here's the point. Hence, Jesus' blood shed in his death. You know your New Testament now. Compare with the Old Testament. Jesus' blood shed in his death is described in Hebrews 13, verse 20, as what? The blood of the everlasting covenant. Isn't that amazing? 
the necessity of Christ's death. Christ had to die. It was no accident. He had to die. Why? Because as mediator of the new covenant, with the promise of eternal life to all who believe on him, to all who are called, he had to carry out this role of testator in which he had to die before the benefit could be accessed. Let me close by saying this, beloved. The death of Christ is crucial. Many religions scoff at it. This idea, Islam scoffs at the death of Christ. But here's the point. The word of God makes it emphatically clear. You see, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Sins cannot be remitted. Sins cannot be forgiven by our good works. No matter how we try, regardless of our efforts at being good, we can never be good enough for God. It is only Jesus Christ, the perfect Lamb of God, the one whose blood was shed, the one whose blood was spilled, the one whose blood satisfied the claims of divine justice. Only through his blood can you and I ever come into peaceful relations with God. The question this morning is this. Do you know him, this Savior, as your Savior? Have you trusted him? In what are you trusting for your salvation? Is it your goodness? Is it your churchianity, your religiosity, your good works, your baptism? Only the blood of Christ, beloved, only the blood of Christ can atone for sin. His death was sacrificial. His death was redemptive. His death was that of a mediator between God and man. And his death was an absolute necessity. He had to die so that we might be forgiven. May God grant these truths, grant that these truths would take a hold of our lives. For those of us who are saved, may we come to love him more, to serve him more. For those who are not saved, that they would come to him and whom to know is life eternal.